You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 10 of StoryShark 2005's fanfiction story titled The Book of Job. Mr. Miyagi was your father in every way that counted. After Miyagi died, all you remember thinking is that it felt the same as it did the first time. A brain-deadening, heart-deadening, soul-deadening emptiness. The feeling that the ground was opening up and it was swallowing you whole. Or at least all the good feelings. You didn't feel sad so much, you felt dead. You felt like you'd never be okay again. Never feel normal again. Like life was now dull, long and stale. Flat just a shadow of what you thought you had before. Your father dies, and 34 years later you lose another one. And all you can think is this stupid thought that maybe you'll get a third one. That the emptiness you felt in 1977, the emptiness you thought would last forever, didn't actually last forever because you found Mr. Miyagi. You found him. You picked him up. And you put him right in the hole where your dead father used to be. You used him. He was a replacement, you whisper, because somehow you've always known this truth. So, do you want to talk about Johnny? About Robbie? It's not the same, you say. That's not what this is. How is it different? It's 2019. Your wife is dead. Your son is dead. And you're doing it again. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, greetings from the wild and arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Welcome to episode three. Our special guest author today is StoryShark2005. StoryShark2005 has been a member of AO3 since 2016 and has posted a total of 18 fanfictions in the following fandoms. Star Trek, Supernatural, Silicon Valley, Jessica Jones, Karate Kid, and Cobra Kai. She grew up in the American Midwest and describes herself as having a kind of in-between sensibility. Her interest in writing began in middle school when a teacher told her that her writing was good and inspired her into writing more. So kudos to that teacher, by the way, because I totally agree. Story Shark 2005 discovered Cobra Kai in 2019 and calls that fandom her home and passion. Her first multi-chapter Cobra Kai project was No Mercy for the Midlife Crisis, which was co-written with her sister, Elsie 51. Story Shark describes that story as the fanfiction that helped her prove to herself that she could finish a large-scale project, which I think is a huge accomplishment worth celebrating, so well done. These days, she's waiting for season three of Cobra Kai to drop on Netflix, and is currently working on a project for the Smallville fandom. I also do want to mention here that Story Shark 2005 produces her own awesome podcast called Talkin' Fanfic, Cobra Kai, which features author interviews and fanfiction analysis for the Cobra Kai fandom. 
Story Shark 2005, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am doing so well. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me on today. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate that. So I want to jump in here right to the interview, and I want to start at the very beginning. Can you tell us about the time that you first discovered fan fiction? Do you remember how that felt? And do you remember why you liked it? Yeah, I do. That's It's so funny. It's just thinking about what year it is and then what year that was. As far as I can remember, that was about 1999 because the first fan fiction I remember was for Star Wars when the prequels came out. The Phantom Menace was that first episode one. And there, and I was, so I was like nine, <laughs> which is crazy. I'm 30 now. But there was a book series called Jedi Apprentice. And it was focused on Obi-Wan Kenobi as like a young student Jedi. So my sister and I just burned through those. And we lived in a rural area and we're getting, I think we got dial-up internet right about the same time. So it was like slow, you know, it sounded when you logged on, it sounded like a submarine kind of baby, 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 you know, it took forever. I remember those days, the dark days of the internet, right? Oh my gosh. And I have no idea how I stumbled upon it, but I remember, I don't even think it was fanfiction.net. I think it was some kind of archive. It was like, oh crap, what was it called? The the force.net maybe, something like that. Or, oh, Jedi Apprentice Fan Dimension. That was one. And I remember, yeah, just saying like, oh my gosh, like people are writing about the characters I love and they're writing their own stories. Like it just blew the back of my head off. I just couldn't believe that this world existed and it was, you know, I'm just a, a book person and a person that lives in fiction and I love escapism and imagination. And so it was everything that I was hoping to find. I was like nine. So I also discovered like stumbled upon like explicit fics and slash and stuff. So I remember being shocked at that. Like, what is this? But, and something about it too, that I, yeah, I didn't tell my parents about it. I think I discovered pretty quickly that they probably wouldn't want me just reading, you know, what strangers were writing. So I do remember like staying up at night and telling my parents that like I was into dollhouses, which is weird. So I said, oh, I'm shopping for dollhouse furniture, which was a lie. I was like reading fan fiction. So yeah, just lots of hours doing that. But yeah, Star Wars was that first fandom. And and then it must have been 2005 where I started a fanfiction.net account. And that's why my <laughs> my username has 2005, which I didn't realize would cause people to think that I was born that year and think I was like 15. It's like, no, I'm 30. I'm an adult. But um, yeah, I guess I guess as far as how I felt, yeah, just it was just the coolest thing ever. It was like discovering a whole new world. Yeah, it was it was awesome. And then it just that's been the only consistent like hobby and passion I've had as a through line. Like I've always read fan fiction and I wasn't writing back. I, I do remember I did have some some fan fiction I had started, I think, on my home computer, but nothing I was taking too seriously. I was mostly a reader, but I've done it my whole life since then. So I love how you describe hiding it from your parents, because that was very much my own experience. I was about 14 years old. It was 1997. And that's when I first discovered fan fiction. And I had the same reaction that you did. I loved it, but it felt a little naughty. Yeah. The clandestine, if you will. And I remember thinking, if my parents find out about this, I, you know, my ass is grass here. <laughs> so I got really good at erasing the history on the, you know, internet browser that I was using. 
And, you know, my computer was actually in the family room where everybody would congregate at night. And I remember being really scared that someone in my family was going to look over my shoulder one day (laughs) and realize what I was doing. So I did the same thing. I would tell people, oh, I'm in a chat room or I'm, you know, looking at a website about science or. Oh, it was the same thing. Kids these days have like laptops and phones, but we had family computers, one computer for the whole family. And yeah, it was ours was in the living room, too. So. You know, everybody's walking around behind you and you're clicking over to a different tab or erasing your history. It was was the exact same thing for me. Yes, I always had a couple of tabs open so that I could quickly (laughs) switch it, you know, if somebody came over my shoulder. And now I can't imagine, you know, reading in fan fiction that way because how distracting. Oh, yeah. But that was the way it was when we were children, you know, reading these things and being like, why do I like this so much? And knowing that, you know, you had to kind of keep it a secret. (laughs) Yeah. And even, you know, even more recently today, like, it's hard to describe to people that don't get it. Although I find that friends my age these days, like most of them would be like, oh, you know, that's cool. Like they kind of superficially get it. But I don't know. It's it's like a passion or it isn't. Like most fan fiction authors that I've now talked to or met, it's the same thing where they've been reading and writing since they were a kid but other other people seemed a little bemused they find it strange (laughs) so it even seems a little like mysterious or hard to explain even though I think it's like the coolest thing ever and everybody should be able to appreciate it but some people don't get it I guess yeah well you know that's one of the beauties of doing a podcast then about fan fiction we get to talk about it and we get to explain the reasons why we liked it why we're drawn to it I I love being able to do that with folks who understand it and who get it, because you're right, there are a lot of people out there who just, maybe they just haven't had any experience with it or any good experience with it. So I'm hoping to change that perspective a little bit here. So it's really cool. Yeah. (laughs) Find other people who are just as passionate as I am. Now, when did you write your first piece of fan fiction and what was that experience like? Yeah, I would say, so yeah, when I was like nine reading Star Wars fan fiction, I do remember like what, I just had this vivid idea or dream and it was like Obi-Wan Kenobi, instead of being trained by Qui-Gon Jinn, he gets kicked to the curb and Anakin takes his place and he has to go to Tatooine instead of Anakin. So I had this elaborate idea for this story, which in retrospect was not good, but I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I do, and I had like, you know, some bad couple of documents or chapters that I was writing on my home computer. And I remember keeping those for a long time. And then eventually, I'm trying to think, like, I guess Star Trek, Star Trek 2009 was maybe my first kind of real go at it. And it's, I think it was the first thing I posted on fanfiction.net and it never got finished. So like my early... I've, you know, I started a project in 1999 with Star Wars, and then I had just snippets of things and half-finished ideas and half-finished pieces for like 10 years, and I didn't really finish anything substantial until I think just a few years ago. So the stuff that I don't even log into fanfiction.net, but I did right before this interview just to look. So I have like uh, 42,000 words on that Star Trek fic, which was huge for me back then, but it just kind of fizzled out and I didn't. I don't know. I didn't either plan it out right or I just 
you know, sometimes you start a project and it just doesn't, you know, you just lose kind of interest in it. And then, you know, I had, I think I have, yeah, I have scrubsfic on fanfic.net that's unfinished. I have, I had a little two shot from the Artemis Fowl fandom. So I guess technically that would be maybe one I finished. But my early experiences in writing were just like a lot of people's, I think, where you're, you're just trying stuff and you're, but you're not able to finish. And then I, I got into uh, Jessica Jones a few years back. And I have a story that I actually still really like, but it's like one or two chapters from the end. And so I would say, I guess up until, you know, a couple of years ago, I just felt like I loved writing. I loved doing it. I love the process, but I just thought I could, I can't finish things. I'm a starter. I'm not a finisher. And I was feeling pretty crappy about that. And, and I still want to finish that Jessica Jones one, but I found Cobra Kai and I just, I was so attached to the show. And I remember sitting down and writing a one shot for Cobra Kai, which ended up being the, the first chapter or the prelude chapter to No Mercy. And then having a real, like, just a feeling that like, you know, I have a story here and I, I think I can do it. And if I just keep going, you know, and you just reach an age, maybe it's 30 where you have a better idea of your abilities and what you want. And I quit a retail job at the time, which was taking a ton of time. And I had a, a remote office job that just gave me more time. So that was key. But I spent six months on No Mercy for the Midlife Crisis and finally finished something. And not only that, it was a 100,000 word fic which in my mind was this big goalpost that if I can do that, wow, I know I can do anything, which is not totally true because the word count doesn't mean quality, but it is something to be able to craft a story arc that has a beginning, middle, and end and finish it. So so yeah, the, the Cobra Kai one, that, that No Mercy for the Midlife Crisis, that feels like my first story just because all the other ones before that are sitting unfinished. <laughs> oh, so I didn't realize that that was the first one that you finished. That must have felt like such an accomplishment to be able to finish something and not just finish something, but that was a multi-chapter story. So it was a huge project for you. Yeah, it was a huge project. And I will add a caveat that my sister who you mentioned, and she is a phenomenal writer, but she just doesn't have as much time and and maybe less determination. I'm not sure, but she hasn't really taken undergone a project of her own that she really knew that she wanted to finish but she wrote some sections of that story and she was like the cheerleader like she helped me she would read anything I wrote and that's just an incredible luxury for a writer because you know people are never going to care about your project as much as you do and that's just a harsh reality so and and she's my twin sister also so we just and we always have had the same interests and we have a lot in common and we have kind of a dialogue and, and an understanding and a bond so she knew what I was going for and to be able to have her read, you know, snippets or chapters and give me feedback and tell me what she liked, that was huge. And I and she was just as much into Cobra Kai as I was. I think that helped. Like, remember on the Jessica Jones one, I would kind of have to make her read stuff from that. But so she, I will say that she was a huge help. And that's a luxury that most people don't get to have is like a, a beta reader at your fingertips that will help you out. I've heard that from other offers over and over and over again. That sometimes having that beta reader who is not only there to cheerlead you through the project, but also there to offer a lot of feedback and also offer accountability to you as a writer, sometimes that makes all the difference. 
Yeah, it does. She would definitely, you know, text me in the middle of the day like, oh, I haven't seen anything on the document for a couple of days. Like, what's going on? You know, so just when I didn't feel like it, she was just helped me give me that motivation. So, yeah, she's awesome. Now, your most recent stories have been in the Cobra Kai fandom. Can you tell us how you became involved in the Cobra Kai fandom? Yes, definitely. So Cobra Kai was originally a YouTube Red series. So YouTube was trying to put their hat in the streaming game. And it is a reboot of the Karate Kid movie from 1985. And I actually hadn't seen the Karate Kid, but I saw a trailer for Cobra Kai on YouTube. And it just looked really fun. And I was like, oh, it's so cool. They got the same two main actors. 30 years later to come star in the show. So that was appealing. So I tried it out with like a YouTube trial because you had to pay for YouTube Red. But the fir- I think the first episode was free and then you could start like a month-long free trial. And at the time I found it was in 2019 and they had ju- they had finished their first season and they were and we were waiting for the second season to come out. So I got to see all I binge-watched the first season. And then I only had to wait like a month or two before the second season came out. And that was nice for me because the rest of the fandom that had been there since the beginning had to wait, you know, a year or whatever for the second season to come out. But in any case, whenever I find a new TV show or movie or book that I'm really interested in, the first thing I always do is go to AO3 and just see what the fandom's like. It's like I always do that, especially if I get attached to the characters. So yeah, so I did that and there was a good little presence. I think the at the time, maybe in 2019, I think the fandom only had maybe 200. I think they had about 200 stories at that point, but there wasn't and La Russo, the pairing between Daniel and Johnny, the two main characters. That was the most popular pairing as I expected because it's a real like dreary kind of like antagonistic rivalry, enemies to friends to lovers kind of things. And that's just really popular. It's appealing to people. So they did have stories like that and something, I don't know, I don't know what it was at the time. I think I knew that I wanted to try writing for this fandom. I knew I wanted to try finishing something and I had also just never been really engaged in fandom. Like I hadn't made online friends all that much before. So I kind of went looking for that. So I found some of the authors I liked on Tumblr and then I found a Discord chat and just met everybody and they call that the quiver. So I mentioned them on my podcast But I just, it was a really welcoming, awesome group of authors that were all really encouraging to each other. And yeah, and so I started my project and I think I got halfway through or three quarters of the way through before I actually started posting because I wanted to make sure that I could see the end of the tunnel before I started posting. And it got good response and yeah. And and since then, the show has moved to Netflix where it really blew up and everybody, now we have like, I think there's like 700 stories, which is which is more than double, I think, in the last four months or something. Like ever since the move to Netflix in August, it just blew up. So lots of new authors, lots of new readers. So it's really exciting. So it's been a great home. I think it came out on Netflix. We established what, it was in August of 2020? Yeah, I believe so. You know, I'm so glad that you mentioned that the first thing that you do when you find something that you love is go to AO3. Because I remember watching the second season of Cobra Kai and I hadn't even made it through all the seasons yet. So I'm sitting there on the couch with my family, and I'm sitting there on my phone, watching Cobra Kai with one eye, 
and watch, you know, on my phone on AO3 with my other eye, like furiously looking, right, for stories because I'm like, oh, there has to be some juicy stuff in there by now, you know. So I'm glad I'm not the only one who uh, who does that. I couldn't even wait for, you know, finishing season two before I jumped right in oh, <laughs> to yeah. see what was in there. But yeah, you're right that it has blown up. I've been keeping an eye on it. And since August of 2020, you have seen tremendous surge of new authors coming in and trying their hand with the Cobra Kai fandom. And I think we're almost at... Is it 800 stories or have we surpassed that? I think that? so. I, can, I don't think, I checked a couple of days ago and it, I, it was a 700 something. So it's possible, but it's somewhere in there, like seven to 800. We're approaching that number, which is really exciting because I think that the best part is watching all of these different variations of the Cobra Kai fandom split out into all of these different interpretations. And I just love to see what all of the authors do with these characters. So that's been a lot of fun to watch. What was it for you about Cobra Kai that really drew you in? I know you mentioned some things earlier in your previous answer, but if you could expound on that just a little bit, what is it about Cobra Kai specifically that really draws you in? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think initially it just seemed like, I remember just watching the trailer. Yeah, again, just seeing the opportunity for an actor as far as just looking at the show, to come back after 30 years and reprise the same role. And normally in a TV show or a movie, you don't get that kind of scale. If something's rebooted that long after the fact, it's probably a different character or a different actor playing the character at an older age. So getting to see Ralph Macchio and William Zabka come and continue that performance, it just makes it compelling in a way that a separate actor or a different storyline wouldn't be able to accomplish. I don't know exactly what it is. Something about seeming maybe more closer to real life, but something about that made it really compelling. But I think the show does a great job at drawing just contrast and just aesthetically, like you've got the story of two dojos and two ways of this philosophy of karate, a real yin-yang thing going on, kind of in a Star Wars, like a it's like karate space opera kind of, and you have this surface level where you think you know what's black and white and what's good and what's bad, and that holds true in the karate kid. Daniel's training under Mr. Miyagi is very much the sort of the path of the light, and then Johnny training under Cobra Kai under Sensei Kreese is like your dark, you know, Darth Vader kind of the dark side of the force. But and and those were great movies, but I don't think I would have gotten just, I mean, I did come to The Karate Kid later in life. I didn't see the movie until I watched the show. But the great thing about Cobra Kai is that it really, not really inverts it, but it just, it, you really start to see the gray areas in between, especially in season two. So that, that just really appeals to me that, because I, I find that in life, like, almost nothing is black and white. There's always nuances and gray. And that's where all the interesting stories are. And actually, thinking of that now, that's just the great thing about fan fiction is that I never understood why it's not so appealing to people because the great thing is that fan fiction writers are able to go to those gray areas and the scenes that you don't have time for in a show and or focus on a certain moment with a character that, that the movie or the book is unable to go into. Like Draco Malfoy in Harry Potter. He's just so rich for exploration, like this conflicted dark character has charisma so anyway yeah just that gray area is always so interesting and then the 
the world of Cobra Kai is, is actually really contained within the San Fernando Valley. It's always referred to as the Valley, which has always been appealing to people, especially in like TV sitcoms in the 80s and 90s. Like, yeah, I don't know, that, that area of California seems to be of interest to people. But I like that it's contained within that world and that it is this kind of heightened reality as well. Like karate is so popular and important in the world of Cobra Kai in a way that like is just not true to life. Like no one cares about karate. You don't get hundreds of people attending like a high school karate tournament probably. But it's like football in Texas, you know, within the world. So it's a fun contained world to play with, I guess. Absolutely. And I love how you mention those gray areas because that's one of the things that I really appreciated about Cobra Kai. I think you make a great point with the original Karate Kid movies. I have noticed that a lot of movies in the 70s and 80s really focus on this stark contrast between black and white, like you said, good and evil, right? We know who the good guy is. We know who the evil guy is. And Cobra Kai really subverts that because in modern cinema and modern storytelling, we do try as best as we can to get more into those nuanced areas. And even my spouse, who doesn't normally pick up on stuff like that, I remember he was sitting next to me as we were watching Cobra Kai and he said, wow, I never realized what an asshole LaRusso was to Johnny. And he really felt that for the first time watching Cobra Kai which I thought was just really phenomenal that we got to see the other side of the story. Oh, yeah. that That is the entrance into the Cobra Kai world is through Johnny's eyes. You know, you come in and you see this guy that's kind of a, a drunk kind of loser. It's sort of the obvious, like, peaker in high school. Like, Johnny was like the equivalent of, like, the star football player. And now he's, you know, passed out on his living room floor with a empty beer spilled everywhere and but the way that Zabka approaches it and the way the the show presents it you're immediately you know you love Johnny like he's sympathetic even though he's kind of a jerk and stuck in the past and isn't the uh, most woke of woke people you just he's just endearing and so the show does a great job pulling you into the valley through his perspective and by the time you meet Daniel at the end of episode one or some yeah, I think it's in the middle of episode one. You're really kind of with Johnny or in his shoes. So it's a testament to the writing that it's so effective because most viewers that I talk to, their first response is that they do not like Daniel. And I always have a soft spot for Daniel, both from what I know of the Karate Kid movie and what I've seen in that movie. And just, I always, I think I always see like, the characters that maybe people don't like as much and I just get attached to them for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. But he is for yeah, I think even still in season two, he's a little bit harder to like than than Johnny is, even though you can see Johnny making all these mistakes. But anyway, it's and it's a fun fandom because people tend to pick Team Johnny or Team Daniel or Team Cobra Kai, Team Miyagi Do. So it's just kind of set up to be, you know, put people in their tribes, but for the most part it's all in good fun. There's I'm sure there's some jerks out there, but Oh, absolutely. And I agree with you that both characters have so many things about them that are just lovely. And I love them both. But I will say that in my older years, looking at Johnny up there on the screen and really feeling what he's feeling in the moment, where his life is when the first season of Cobra Kai starts out, 
I related so strongly to that sentiment because I am getting to that age personally where you start evaluating your life and you start thinking, you know, how did I get here again? I had so many plans for my life that never, you know, panned out. And, you know, what am I doing? And so I felt like I related deep in my bones to the disappointment that you could tell he was feeling about where he was at in that particular time. And I just really globbed on and related to that. For you, which characters in the show do you feel like you relate to the most? That's a difficult question. I think I'm right along with you where watching Johnny on the screen, and I think a big part of that is William Zabka's ability to emote and sink into that character. I think that was, for me, that was a huge surprise to discover this actor that I'd never heard of besides seeing him in Karate Kid. And I, after the fact, you know, I saw, I had seen Back to School and just one of the guys, which are a couple of movies he did, just playing a stereotypical villain. But he is an incredible actor. And so I think that's a big part of that performance coming across so well. I don't, I don't know. I, Daniel and Johnny are definitely the characters that the show revolves around. They're my favorite characters. You know, as far as the person I maybe more like or relate to, maybe Moon, just because I'm a people pleaser. I want, you know, her, her line in season two when all the kids are fighting is, can't we all just get along? Which, you know, some people could naysay as being, oh, what am I trying to say? Kind of Pollyanna or naive. But I think if more people were like Moon, the world would be a better place. But it certainly wouldn't make as fun of a TV show, for sure. You know, I like that Daniel's kind of a little shit. And I like that Johnny is irreverent. And they're so much fun to watch together. But yeah, I wish we had more moons in the world, I think. I thought they did a really great job with the child characters. I call them children because I'm old. But, you know, the teenage characters in the show, I thought, were really well fleshed out. And they give them each their own little personalities. And it's a really a joy oh to gosh. see those actors and mm-hmm. the way they portray them. And also just the way that they interact and how they're playing out the same karate rivalry. Oh, history repeats itself. Right? Yes. Yeah, you know, and Machio and Zabko always say this, that, you know, you come to see Janelle and Johnny, but you stay for the young cast. And that was what I was most surprised. I figured I would only be interested in Daniel and Johnny, but every cast member of that young cast is so well-written and so well-portrayed by the actors. So I totally agree that what an amazing, pleasant surprise that was, that those you get just as sucked into the kids' storyline as you do Daniel and Johnny. And that cliffhanger that they left us with, the teenager's storyline, I'm curious to see how that is continued in season three. I recently saw the season three trailer, and it looks really intense. I'm really excited to see. Oh my gosh. Yep, me too. Today we will be talking specifically about your fan fiction story, The Book of Job. If someone who's never read your story before were to ask you what The Book of Job is about... How would you describe that to them? I would say that it is a story about grief. So I did, I'd kill a couple characters off in the beginning. I don't think it's any spoiler. I kill off Amanda and Anthony, who I love, by the way. So Daniel loses half his family. And then it, and it is a romance between Daniel and Johnny. And Sam and Robbie are big characters in it. So it is about loss and grief and healing. 
and it's a romance. And then it's also just about reckoning. And I think when I when I do finish it, it's terrible. I haven't finished it. It is a work in progress. But the last kind of act or the last two or three chapters are going to be more about kind of reckoning with the past that maybe you thought you had dealt with already or the grief that Daniel thinks at that point in the story that he's dealt with, but he hasn't really quite dealt with it. So I don't have a great summary, but yeah, it's about, you know, loss and trying to trying to move on from that. The book of Job deals with themes of tragedy and loss and healing from that point. Where did you come up with the idea for that particular story and what made you want to tell it? At some point, I think I had finished, I'm trying to remember when I started this, I think I had finished Midlife Crisis and I was kind of looking for a, a next project. And I think I had written, let's see, there was a couple like little one shots I did in the meantime, one called like, see the water and then magic hands and heart lines. I was doing the shorter ones because I thought I don't want to get into a big, long multi chapter. I want to do some tighter writing with some one shots. Some, some of them will be fun. You know, some little concept like the heart lines of the soul marks AU. So I was looking to avoid getting into another multi-chapter, but I had this, I don't know, picture in my head of like, I don't know, it sounds messed up, but just Daniel like in a hospital kind of curled over, you know, and it's it's so melodramatic in sort of that, just that image. But I thought, you know, I wanted to see Johnny being more like a comforting role for Daniel. So I had that image and then I just, I think I, one day I was like, you know what, I'm just going to see if I can do like a one shot or just kind of play with this. And I wrote that like first chapter, I think about the accident, or maybe I wrote the hospital scene, something like that. And then it just, I was like, well, okay, I've started another story now. So <laughs> this is where we are. So yeah, as from that point, I started taking it seriously as a, as a project. And whenever I do that, I start like a second document with notes and ideas. And yeah, and then I just started posting it chapter by chapter. I think I had like maybe two or three something chapters written before I started posting. So it was very much not super well sketched out or planned out, but I had, you know, an idea that I wanted kind of a Daniel and Johnny sort of coming together and playing house and Johnny helping Daniel. So I had a vague idea of what I wanted. But yeah, it was just kind of initially sort of a weird picture in my head that I was like, well, I'll just see where this goes. So here we are. I'm so glad that you did choose to make this into a multi-chapter project because in my own experiences with grief, I have discovered that it is layered. Grief is not, you know, something that just hits you once and then, oh, you're done with it. It's this layered experience and you show that in your story, which we wouldn't have really gotten that if you had not included so many chapters. So I thought that was really beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I, what I will say is what I've liked about this story is that I did kind of have an idea of what the story arc would be, but the more I write, and I'm finding this now with the Smallville project I'm doing as well, but the more I write, I realize that I discover things while writing that I couldn't have thought of or discovered at the outset. So for me, the actually write, sitting, writing down, being with characters, you just, you get deep into their world and it just results in better storytelling as you go and what is really best for writers to do probably is to go through that and then go back and edit it to make it look like you knew what you were doing the whole time but I do find that some writers I think have this idea that oh you're going to outline the whole thing and you know exactly what's going to happen and then you just write chapter one two three four five but for example the last couple of chapters 12 and 13 
I think of some of my best writing and I couldn't have done that at the outset. Like I didn't know those two chapters really established the under the sort of a second under layer of what's going on, which is that Daniel and Johnny both have things with their fathers leaving or dying or past relationships that aren't working out that are really still playing out now. So even though the romance has been consummated by that point in the story, nothing's really truly been dealt with. Nothing is over. The past is still right there. So I wasn't thinking of it that way during chapter one. I, it really took me nine, ten chapters or whatever to get to, get to that point. So I, I do like letting people know that writing is exploration. And it really, for me, I don't know how to sum that up. Except that you don't want to put the cart before the horse as far as planning. Like, don't think that you know everything at the outset, even if you have this great plot arc. Like, you're going to find new stuff, and it's probably going to be better than you thought it should be, I guess, from chapter one. That's fascinating. I love that you go into part of the experience of writing the actual story and the process that you used to get there. And I will be asking about that more in just a moment. But first, I did want to just talk about the title of your fan work here a bit, The Book of Job. It sounded interesting to me when I clicked on it. I'm familiar with The Book of Job. After I read all of the chapters that you have posted, I had even more of an appreciation for the title of your story because I felt that it fit so well. And I was just wondering, at what point did you come up with that as the title of your story and how do you feel it relates? I think I, I came up with the title pretty early on. I think I was just thinking of the concept of the work being about loss. And I'm actually not religious per se, but um, I'm familiar with the Bible. And I think those types of I mean, the Bible, there's some of the oldest stories that we have in the Bible. And even though those may even have stories before them from before Christianity or Judaism or whatever, they're well represented in the Bible. And I think anytime you use like an archetype or characters that kind of live in collective memory, it, it does nothing, I think, but enhance the story. And that, and that doesn't have to be Judeo-Christian. I was just talking on my other podcast to, about a story called uh, Who is Like God? It was actually funny, a biblical title referring to the Archangel Michael, but she uses a lot of like folklore fairy tale elements. And that's also like those, those type of archetypes and types of characters like a trickster or a fairy, those repeat over and over. And those are like old oral traditions. So anyway, that just lends some weight to like the story you're trying to tell. And it, of course it should relate. So the idea, of course, between the by the book of Job is that Job is a character in the Bible who is a good Christian man, and it starts this dialectic between God and the devil. And God says, basically, look, Job, he's such a great guy. He's my favorite. And the devil says, well, he's only your favorite because he has all these great things. He's got a big farm and all these animals and all these kids. And he's got a happy life. And so... It actually is like this kind of petty, disturbing story of like God trying to prove a point. And so he starts taking all of these things away from Job. So his children all die. I think maybe his wife, actually. I can't remember. I should know that because I think Naomi is his. I believe that she does die first, right? The wife dies and then the children. Yep. And then a storm comes and destroys his home and his livelihood. Yes, you are right. And I should know those details better. But basically, yeah, everything gets taken from him. And so 
the actual lessons of the parable, it's a very Christian parable where Job talks to God and they go back and forth. And he kind of, I, if I remember, because I did read it, if I remember, you know, the lesson you're supposed to take away is to have faith even in the direst of circumstances, which does sound a little trite because it's like, oh, how are you supposed to be grateful when your whole family is gone? Like Job is a wretched character at, at points in that story, but he... I think he comes through in the end still with faith, if if I recall correctly. But just the idea of a man losing everything. And for Daniel, I mean, losing your wife and your child would be just world-ending. That's what it was supposed to be. And then you have the story kind of being about him getting that back in a way. So rebuilding his life. And Johnny and Robbie help him do that to rebuild his life again. So, But that was, yeah, that was the idea of just using that kind of biblical framework for somebody who loses everything and what do you do after that and deal with grief and and loss and all that stuff i am like you i'm not particularly religious but i do appreciate biblical passages for their literary merit i think some of them are written very beautiful especially the king james version i find is beautiful yes i'm not a huge fan of the more i don't even know what they're called the modern versions oh, yeah, they, they take all the the poetry out of it like because they you know they want to make sure you understand it but it's like reading the cliff notes translations of Shakespeare like it's like reading no fear Shakespeare instead of actually reading Shakespeare it just like ruins the point I agree a hundred percent I really appreciated that you used a few bible passages for some of your stories and I did want to read out a couple of them in the podcast because I felt that they were so relevant So for instance, the epigraph for your first chapter, the very last line, and this is from, I believe, the King James Version of the Book of Job, chapter 7, verses 12 to 21. And that last verse says, For now shall I sleep in the dust, and thou shalt seek me in the morning, but I shall not be. And so you have this image of this man who's so entrenched in grief that he says, I'm just going to go to sleep, and I'm not going to wake up in the morning. And you could look at that one way and say, oh, well, that's just somebody who wants to go to sleep and die and never wake up because his situation is so horrible. But I can also read that to mean someone who's going through this horrible tragedy and that tragedy changes you. Mm, I love that. And so you metaphorically can go to sleep and then wake up as someone completely different. Yeah, I love that reading. Yeah, I I love epigraphs and, you know, a lot of the times what maybe I put into it might not be exactly the same thing that the reader takes away but beautiful language does that it just it's it evokes emotions and makes you stop and think and I find it kind of sets the mood for what you're trying to write too absolutely it set the mood for this chapter so perfectly because this is the chapter when Daniel loses his family the following chapters are him in the hospital just trying to hold it together and you know I can't even imagine the depth of grief that he must be going through. And the way that you write that and the way that it comes through so strongly and emotionally in the story, I was just enchanted. And I really feel like that experience of going through that tragedy does change Daniel in a way. How do you think that that experience changed him as a character, as a person? Yeah, well, thank you for all those kind words. And I should say that it's interesting because I haven't actually gone through this type of grief. The family that I grew up with, which is my parents and my siblings, are all still here. I've lost grandparents and aunts, but nobody that's as close to me as Daniel is as close to his family. But I think as human beings, we 
we prepare our whole lives to lose the people that we love. Like you have nightmares about it. And I think that, you know, the, the biggest existential problem that we as humans have is grappling with the fact that we're going to die someday and the people that we love are going to die someday. And it's all, you know, the darkest moments that we have as people are just waiting for that shoe to drop. And especially, I don't know, it's a nightmare for me to think about any of my family members dying. But as a twin also, somehow that just seems closer. Like, I think about what I would do without my sister and it's just un unimaginable. So, I don't know. I, I haven't been through that. So, I can't say that I have personal experience. But it is something that I think human beings just, we're always, it's always in the back of our heads. Maybe Even if you don't know it. I don't know. I just feel like, and people deal with grief differently. So, anyway, that I think that has something to do with the fact that why maybe you found that effective or realistic is that, I, I mean, it's crazy because I haven't even gone through it, but I imagine it and I have nightmares about it. And that's what that second chapter is really like. It's kind of a nightmare for Daniel. And But I also didn't want to just stay on, like I could have written 10 chapters of just like terrible angst, you know, but I wanted to get past that. But as far as how it changes Daniel, I think that he is grown up and he he lost his father and he watched his mother go through that. And there's a little section with Lucille. You're in her head for a minute in the hospital. She's remembering losing her husband. And uh, she also then has a conversation with Daniel about, you know, he's like, I can't do this. You know, Amanda was the strong one. I can't. He's feeling like he's failing his daughter. And really, he's able to keep going because Samantha survives and he's trying to keep it together for her so definitely his focus is really narrowed down because he has to bury his wife and his kid which is unimaginable but he still has a kid left that he's trying not to fail so I think he's extremely focused on Samantha and he really I think Johnny and Robbie coming into his life in a more immediate way and moving in that's like a lifeline for him because he knows how to function in a family unit and so it's, there's a very brief time when Daniel and Sam are in the house by themselves and it just does not work and it's depressing and it's lonely and there's, you know, there's four chairs at the table, which is just horrible to look at because there should be two more people there. So yeah, I don't know. I would say his, his, uh, his priorities get real simple real quick and I don't think he really goes through the, the grief that he deserves or needs. I mean, that kind of thing takes the rest of your life to, especially, at, I mean, a child, and I could talk a whole show about grief and how I thought about that. And Joan Didion, I used Joan Didion later in the story because she's a... Yes. Yeah, I mean, we can talk more about that. But yeah, I guess to answer your question, it's just that he's... A, I think he kind of shuts a door in his head to the darkest parts of his psyche. And he's tr he's trying not to let it drag him down so that he can keep it together for Samantha. Samantha is that lifeline that gives him a reason to get up in the morning, which is perfectly understandable and plausible. So I really appreciated the way that you portrayed that dynamic. I know that in my experience, grief has a funny way of affecting parts of your life that you wouldn't think would affect you. So I would find myself forgetting really simple things like closing the refrigerator door or buying toilet paper yeah. <laughs> You know, things like that. And I found myself also doing things that I wouldn't normally be open to doing. So I really appreciated that in the midst of Daniel's grief, 
he's presented with this opportunity to offer something to Johnny that Johnny desperately needs. Yeah. Johnny feels like he's a bad father. He feels like he's struggling in life. He feels like he can barely provide for his son and nothing's going right. So I feel like perhaps, and there's really no way to know, but perhaps before this tragedy happened to Daniel, I'm not sure he would have been in the proper frame of mind to be open to that moment where he does open his home to Johnny and say, well, why don't you come and move in with me? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I don't know if it's a question of generosity or if it's, I think in my mind, a lot of that was just Daniel needing somebody there, like the house is empty and depressing and he, and he's, he needs help too. And so, and he sees Johnny as somebody that, I don't know, they already have this connection with Robbie, like Daniel already probably misses Robbie, misses training Robbie. Robbie is kind of a pseudo son for him and he's lost a son, which is brought up in that last chapter of this idea of Daniel kind of trying to replace those he's lost, which seems like maybe a a bad thing, but also I don't know, there's there's kind of holes being filled for both of them and it gives Johnny a stability obviously and help financially. So they both kind of need each other and I think they both sort of know that. And I think Daniel's doing it for Sam too, because he feels like he's not just like Johnny feels like he's not being a good parent. I think Daniel feels like he's just not enough. So that maybe just having Robbie there is going to help Sam. Daniel had this idea of what life was and it was very understandable and he's owns a car dealership and Amanda works there too and they're partners and they have this big house and everything's going well. And then when tragedy happens, it just totally upends life and nothing, there's no floor to stand on anymore. Nothing is certain, especially when a child dies. You talk about grief, like you're not supposed to lose a kid. Like you kind of, like as a child and a teenager, when you first hear about death and you sort of eventually have the realization that you're probably going to experience losing a parent. So there's a lot of subconscious preparing for that. I'm not married, but I have a boyfriend and having a a partner, you think about that kind of grief and that's like, you know, all of us kind of think like, who's going to go first? Is it going to be me and I'm going to have to deal with that? Or am I going to leave them and leave them in that horrible grief? That is like, you're trying to anticipate psychically what will happen there. But a child is like, you're not prepared. You don't even want to think about that because you're supposed to go first and they will deal with that. So it's a completely world-ending, upending. Like it strips everything away. I'm not even a mother. I don't even. I, but I can imagine that that would just destroy you. I think I'm a fairly empathetic person. That I would. None of us will know what that will be like until it happens to you. But anyway, I guess. I guess it's just that. Dan, yeah, Daniel's entire life is like there's no floor or ceiling anymore. He's trying to find stability, and Johnny is helping him do that. I think. I love that you bring up that point that when you're an adult and you have children of your own, it's not the natural order of things for your children to die first. I don't think any parent really goes into parenthood thinking they're going to have to bury their child. So yes, that's a huge thing that just upends everything. And I felt like even though it's not necessarily Johnny's tragedy, He is involved in it to some point because his son was in the car, he was at the hospital when it first happened and all of that. So I felt like even Johnny was affected by this tragedy. 
and I did find myself wondering, would Johnny have accepted Daniel's offer before something like this happened, or was he more open to it because he had already gone through some of that experience with Daniel? Yeah, I think so. I've not been close to anybody that's gone through anything like this. I had a co-worker lose his infant son, and that just, you know, shattered him. And I, and I think Johnny being in the hospital with Daniel, watching that happen, and Johnny having Robbie right there, and just feel that it could have happened. Like, Robbie could have been killed in that if he would have been in the front seat of the car, or, or if the car had hit a slightly different way. Like, Johnny, I think, has to do some, I don't know. Johnny can, can imagine it there, and he's seeing kind of an alternate, a possibility that what if he would have lost Robbie? And I think that's like a near-death experience almost for him. Like there's a moment where the hospital calls and he's like, and you know, when you get a call from a hospital, it's like, it just can't be good. So, and your brain tries to jump to the worst possible situation just to prepare itself mentally. So, yeah. So I think Johnny's, you know, he kind of went to the edge and came back a little bit because it wasn't, you know, he didn't lose Robbie, but he can imagine losing Robbie. He and Daniel, you know, weren't close before this, but I think the reason we like seeing them get together in the show is that they really have so much in common and there's a chemistry there. And I don't know, I th- I think that Johnny has enough empathy to kind of just feel for Daniel there and, and want to help that even if they don't have the, the best past history, Daniel and Robbie have a bond and it would just be any, you just have to be a human being in that room probably to feel like, you want to help somehow. And, and it's, you know, that kind of situation strips away all the bullshit. You know, who cares about Cobra Kai versus Miyagi at that point? You know, it just doesn't, it's so small at that point that it becomes trivial. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the story was watching the process of Daniel and Johnny get to that point where they're more than roommates, Because there's that chapter where they finally realize that they have feelings for each other and they get together romantically. But I loved how there was so much tension and miscommunication around that moment that it wasn't just this sunshiny, oh, everything's happy now and everything's great because, you know, Johnny's still rough around the edges and Daniel's still grieving. But they still make that choice to jump in together, even though that's maybe a hard choice. I loved that tension in that moment. Yeah. I mean, those two characters are just so much fun to write as a kind of an enemies to friends to lovers sort of a thing. And, you know, obviously in a book about grief, you don't want to jump in too fast. And I also wanted it like after about chapter two, maybe three, things get a lot lighter. And so... Half the fun is seeing them in the same apartment together, teaching together. Sam and Robbie are recovering and getting along. And so the story lightens up quite a bit. And yeah, I think they just, they're just such natural and fast friends. And playing house, you know, kind of will put you in a more intimate situation. And I think Johnny definitely keys into something being there first, but he sort of (laughs) is like explaining it away all the time. He's not completely. Like when he talks to Carmen about his motivations for wanting to ruin Daniel's date with Tracy, the reader can kind of read into it and Carmen knows it and sort of Johnny knows it. He doesn't say it outright that I'm jealous and I don't want them to get together because I like Daniel. He doesn't say it like that, but he also doesn't, he's not completely lying to himself, but there is a lot of like, I don't know what you call that, just explaining it away or whatever. So I think Johnny kind of 
almost, you know, instigates the situation. He kind of knows it's there before Daniel does. The flight flips for Daniel. He's like, oh, okay. And he goes right in there. Yeah, I don't know exactly how to explain it, but it was a fun romance to write, a fun get together because they're just like, they're just living as a couple almost for several chapters, which is always fun in fan fiction. It's a fun trope. And then we'll kind of be in denial about it. And everyone else, you know, the kids are like, are they together? You know, and Rosa thinks they're together. And Carmen breaks up with Johnny because she's like, well, clearly you're with Daniel. And he's like, no, I'm not. So all that sort of typical romance fanfic trope was uh, really fun. So I, I did like including all that stuff. I really loved the realism after they do get together. Chapter eight, I think, was one of my favorite chapters. And you include that epitaph in there from the Book of Ruth. Again, another passage from the Bible. And it's that passage that I think a lot of people would be familiar with. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. I've always had such a love fest with that line from that book in the Bible. Yeah. And there will I be buried. Because for me, that can be read romantically and soulmate destiny and all mm -hmm. of that. But I also feel like that can be read as, uh, how would I put this? The older that I get, I realize that when we choose to commit to another person, we're not just committing to having fun with that person and having wonderful experiences with that person. Of course, that's part of a relationship, but you're also committing to that person's baggage, mm -hmm. to that person's life experiences that occurred before you. You're committing to that person's grief. You're committing to that person's rough edges. So you commit to be buried there in that space with them. And I felt like that was portrayed so well in chapter eight that even though they have that climatic moment where they get together and they're finally on the same page, doesn't mean that everything is hunky-dory. It doesn't mean that everything's sunshine. There's still that realism in there Yeah. that you still have to deal with the real shit, right? Yeah. And I think as I wrote the story, I realized that there, there was a lot of kind of unfinished business. So this chapter kind of, the honeymoon period is sort of brief. And then that, that quote I liked for the same reasons you did, that it that it evokes kind of a world-ending kind of passion and, and romance. So Daniel and Johnny are getting together in that sense. Just aesthetically for me, too, I liked it because it's from the book of Ruth. She's talking to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so I named Amanda's mother Naomi. And so it's kind of foreshadowing a little bit that we've kind of forgotten about Amanda's parents. But Naomi comes back at the end of this chapter, kind of signaling that there's some stuff to deal with still and then people probably didn't pick up because it's very small but amanda's middle name i i named as ruth so just kind of those little perils just that quote too where you die i will die and there will be buried so also the sense that amanda's kind of taken something with her from the ones she's loved so part of daniel is sort of gone to or or will always be with her and also amanda's relationship with her mother which i think i'll, I'll be going into in the next chapter and then as well, yeah, just the intensity of the romance with Daniel and Johnny starting something that that is a, a serious thing. They're kind of in too deep to go back at this point. So, yeah, I was trying to think of like what happens in that chapter. I think they just they're together. And then, oh, Sam and Robbie are road tripped up to Northern California just just to give Daniel and Johnny some space. So it is kind of a honeymoon chapter in that sense, which was fun. It's the chapter also where he has some recall of the people in his life that he has been romantic with. So he oh, thinks yeah. of all the girls he's kissed. And then he's thinking about Johnny. And it's just a very beautiful, because, you know, 
grief is not a linear experience, right? So lots of things after the tragedy happens will trigger those old feelings and old memories. And that kind of almost seems like what happens here in this chapter is he gets triggered into memories and feelings of grief and loss. And it's just, it's beautiful. I mean, it's melancholy and it's just gorgeously written. And I really, really enjoyed this. Even It has lighter parts too. So I don't want anyone to get scared away. But yeah, it was just so wonderfully done here. What would you say the most difficult part about writing this was for you? I think finishing Midlife Crisis again, that first story was huge as far as giving me practice and confidence. This is better writing, in my opinion, than Midlife Crisis. So it was, I don't know, it was just coming out better. I think difficulty-wise, hmm, I don't know. I've, I've just loved every part of writing this story. It's been really great. I didn't, you know, at first I thought uh, maybe I'm unqualified to write this just because I haven't been through that kind of grief. But I I think you can't let that stop you as a writer. I mean, you get all kinds of philosophies of, you know, people telling you what you shouldn't, shouldn't do. And, you know, if it's bad, then people aren't going to read it or people aren't going to comment. So people have responded well to this story. I think I just, you know, (laughs) that, I mean, this sounds terrible, but and I have not given up on this story. I, I do want to emphasize, but everything came pretty timely. And then I just, I think I just got a little burnt out, to be honest, with with Cobra Kai. And it had been two years. And it's funny because that coincided right as the show hit Netflix and I got all these new readers and comments. But like at the same time, I was kind of getting burnt out. And that's not to say that I don't love these characters. I, I think for me, Daniel and Johnny... As fictional characters, I feel like I know them better than I've had my, and I have my head around them better than any other fictional character that I've written for fan fiction. So I feel like I know them really well. It is kind of sad that I haven't updated this since June, which to me, or the end of June, which to me is like just pathetic. (laughs) I was really hoping to finish this by now. So I'm disappointed in myself in that aspect, but not that it's been easy, but I feel like the whole story came together well, is coming together well. So there wasn't like, I think, a chapter that I really felt stuck on. I would get stuck, but then, you know, you just kind of keep trying and it and it eventually comes out. I will say I am proud of myself for those last couple of chapters. That's in a different style, but I thought that came out well. But yeah, I would just say I need to see this one through. And maybe the grief thing was a little difficult at the outset, but this has been one of the fun, more fun ones to write, I would say, for me. Surprisingly fun. <laughs> Are you more of a outliner and a planner when you do your stories? Or I heard this term yesterday, are you a pantser? You sit down and let it come out and whatever comes out, comes out. Yeah, it's a mix of both. And I find that it's like tossing a pizza or something. Like There's a lot in the air as far as plot and character. And there's probably some other aspect. You have to get your feet wet in the story first. Because I do try and plan out scenes, but I find that it works better if I do that as I go, as opposed to really sitting down and feeling like I have to have the outline totally done. Because I find if if I'm too married to the idea I have at the outset, then I miss opportunities as you go in. But you still want to be kind of shaping the story and know where you're going and where you're coming from. Like if you do no planning and you just kind of write stream of conscience, it's just going to read like a mess. Like there might be some good writing in there, but as far as storytelling goes, the more you do it, the more you realize it really is a, a craft. It's really difficult. Like it's 
difficult to write good things. And especially um, I'm doing this Smallville project now. I don't know, to be honest, I don't know the characters as well. And there's way more canon to work with. So it is more difficult. So that story has a villain in it. So I've like 50,000 words into the thing and I realized I don't know my villain. So I've gone off and written this like 30,000 word story of like from the villain's point of view because I feel like I need to get to know the villain. So it's like juggling. I have to get into it to sort of know where I want to go. Or sometimes you just sit down to write a scene. Even at this level, you'll think you know where the scene's going and then the dialogue comes out different or you get an idea and it just changes a little bit. So I think if you are an outliner, you just have to be prepared to adjust because it'll probably come out better if you adjust. But yeah, going with no plan probably won't work either unless you go in and write something and then you can go back and make it coherent. But yeah, so a little bit of both, I guess. It sounds like you really emphasize a lot of flexibility between the two methods to get somewhere in the middle, right? Where you kind of know where you're going, but then you also have that flexibility of being able to say, hey, sometimes when I'm writing something, the plan changes yeah. and that's okay. Yeah, like I didn't know there was going to be Louis and I, I had, a, I don't know, one of my favorite scenes is when uh, Louis and Tracy are gonna are drinking on the porch together. I love that scene. I, I didn't have any plan to really involve Louis anymore in the story, but I just thought, well, Louis trying to get his job back. I needed an Uber driver. I was like, gosh, maybe Louis driving around Ubers to make money until he can worm his way back into the dealership and So that was like little stuff like that'll happen. Or I wrote Naomi a little more than I maybe intended. I didn't intend to put that section in from her point of view. Yeah, I guess little stuff like that comes up and you just don't want to miss it just because it's not in the plan originally. What advice would you give to the younger or more inexperienced writers who are just starting out in a fandom? I would say a lot of writers forget to, and myself included many times, forget to read. I would say read good stuff, and there's so much good fan fiction out there. Like if you find an author you like, go find their bookmarks list and read that good stuff. But also read like real books. You know, people in fan fiction I think tend to get a little bitter about the establishment, quote unquote. But it's true that, and there is stuff that in fan fiction I think is better than some published work. And you know, there's a lot of stupid or stuff published you wonder why it was published. But you know, read like real literature, you know, something that's difficult because that will help you. But also just, you know, a lot of people talk about writer's block. I talk about that too. But really, if you really want to get better, the only solution is to sit down and just do it. Just bang your head against a wall and just do it. And writing, bad writing is the only way to get better. And every single writer, except maybe these geniuses that will never be anyway, Everybody starts out bad and there's usually actually a curve to it like you know you're bad maybe but then you like maybe finish something and you think it's the best thing ever and it's actually not. Your confidence level kind of goes up but you actually you haven't spent enough time practicing for it to actually be good. So your first published work might not get that many comments and kudos but if you keep going and if you keep writing your skills actually will do nothing but get better. You can't write more and get worse. So you have to just keep writing. And eventually you're going to realize that you are getting better and you're going to look at that old stuff and go, that was crap. And then along that scale, your confidence gets better because you actually know what's good and what's bad. So, you know, it's tough sometimes, especially if you're in a fandom that maybe doesn't have that much attention. But I think a lot of us overemphasize feedback because we're in this world where social media and instant gratification and instead of wanting to be president, kids grow up wanting to be YouTube influencers, which is screwed up. 
because we put our phones in kids' hands early and they just, they get so much like feedback and stimulation. You're, you're trained to want that. But some of the best stuff in the world was, you know, one, you know, like, I don't know, Madame Bovary or something. That guy spent years writing that just in like a dark room with very little feedback. Like to get feedback, they had to mail pages to a friend and wait two months for it to come, you know, come back by horse or whatever. So I think a lot of us were like these trained monkeys or something, and we want feedback all the all the time. But just be aware of your ego and don't put too much emphasis on the kudos and the comments. Just keep writing and you know if you want to do it, then you're just going to do it. And it sucks because it takes being in a room alone. Like I've tried writing on the couch next to my boyfriend with the TV on and those results are not as good as if I shut my door. So you have to make sacrifices, which is unfortunate, but you know, it's not easy. So, but just keep going. You know, you can't get worse. <laughs> I like to hang out on the fan fiction thread on Reddit. And I love when writers tell other writers, you know, make sure that you're writing for yourself first. Yeah. Write because you love it. Write because it's fun. Write because it means something to you. And then if you get positive reaction to that, that's just an extra bonus. But never forget that you write for you first. You create for yourself. And I just think that that's beautiful advice. So thank yeah. you. Now, this next question, I think I could have written this a little bit better. So I apologize. But how would you answer the existential question about what fan fiction actually is? So fan fiction versus original fiction, there's like a service level difference that's easy to see. It's that fan fiction is kind of based on an existing world. So you have certain characters in a certain world that you have as canon and understanding, and it allows you to have an understanding, a baseline understanding with the reader, which is fun because it gives you like flexibility to sort of maybe go into situations or that would otherwise require a lot of like setting the stage and getting to know the character but you can write a one shot about Johnny you know as a coda to season two episode three or whatever and everybody knows where he is at that certain point and you, then you can just write what you want to write so even though you're chained to canon in a way you actually it allows you to do things you, you're not otherwise able to do in original fiction but yeah existentially I've always said it's an amateur pursuit you know like if you tell your friends you write fan fiction you always get the response, oh, well, uh, are you going to try and publish it? Or how do you make money off of that? You know, well, you're not ever going to make money off of it. That's the name of the game. Like, you're doing it because you love the source material and you love to write. So I don't know. It's just this, like, great amateur fun space that you're able to play in and you're able to interact with other people. Like, you immediately find a tribe, you know, when you publish a fan fiction in a certain ship or a certain fandom. Like there's already hundreds of thousands of people waiting to share ideas with or read what you've written. So it's a way of connecting to people. It's a playground. It's a fictional playground. And yeah, it, it's kind of all of those things. It's good fun. I think that my favorite answers to that question are always, oh, well, it's fun. Yeah. You know, and it is. It is. like <laughs> it's, That's the number one thing about it is it's just, it's like nothing but fun. And I love that we can give that response and another fan fiction uh, writer or reader will immediately understand that. But the older I get, the more I'm also having a lot of fun diving a little bit deeper than that too. And having intellectual conversations about fan fiction mm -hmm. and asking, why is it worth writing? And why is it worth reading? Because I think that it does have value 
beyond just that it's fun. So if you were to answer that question, why is fan fiction worth writing and reading? How would you answer that? As far as writing goes, just putting something out into the world that, that somebody's going to enjoy, you know, that's the, kind of any kind of art creation. I think I love writing because like you and I have both experienced this story and it's almost like we've had a conversation together, even though we haven't had a, we've had a common experience almost, even though your experience of the story as a reader is going to be different from my experience writing it. It's not going to be exactly the same, but it's just a connection. And that's nothing but a good thing. That's what life's about is connecting with other people. Yeah, I don't know, just putting something out into the world that people are, are going to enjoy, you know, and I just, fan fiction reading has just been something I've, I've loved forever. Experiencing what someone else has put into the world and put their heart and soul into. I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of bad fan fiction. Everybody's got to write it. Every, you always have to write, like I said, bad stuff. But once you have an author that's at the level that they're doing something that just like knocks your socks off. One of the cool things about this Smallville fandom I found is that it's, it's a 20-year-old fandom. It's had time to mature and to have writers that have written 75 stories or something in the fandom. So they've been in these characters' heads for so long that they've got it down and they're so good. Some of the, some of these stories are unbelievable. And we have some of that in Cobra Kai, but it's only going to get better because we it's a young fandom. So it's fun going to these. Harry Potter is the same way. It's like you have so much bad stuff, but you also have an unbelievable amount of really good stuff. And it's just like a gold nugget. Like some people just, their level and ability with language is unbelievable. And it's just amazing. And I wish I could find some of those people. And, and some of them I do. I find them on Tumblr where, I leave, you know, you leave them a comment, tell them how how incredible their writing is and how, wow, I just had this two hours where I was transported into another world. And, you know, only fiction can do that. Fan fiction lets us do that with the characters that we already love. But yeah, find it, finding an author that, that you love is just the best thing ever. Speaking of authors that we love, if you had to tell me some of your top AO3 authors that you follow and admire, who would those be? I'll just name a couple just within the Cobra Kai fandom, because like I said, it's a young fandom. It's also blowing up, and since I got a little burned out, I know that I've missed good stuff. But I always enjoy reading uh, Narcissa Black, Lost Magician, Poet Dameron, A Lazy Panda, Sue Sees It. Those are just a handful that I was thinking of in Cobra Kai. But in other fandoms, let's see, one that comes to mind is an author called Provocative Envy. And she, I discovered her in the Harry Potter fandom. She was writing characters that were like minor characters and small characters. And I think I was on a hunt for something about Pansy, one of hers that was like, like a Pansy and Harry. Like, I think Harry's like a professional hockey player and Pansy's like a prostitute that's trying to be a professional pastry chef or something. And it was just delightful. And I was like, the writing is so good. So I went and just looked her up and she's done a ton of Harry Potter stuff. And it's mostly these like weird AUs. Like there are almost none of them in the universe. She somehow manages to capture this nugget of the character and put him in a totally different world. And her writing is always entertaining. It's always tight. It's not overdone. It's just great. And she does this fun thing. Usually most years she does this thing called Spring Fling, which is this Tumblr event that she does. And she polls people, like, vote for this pairing and this situation, and she kind of cobbles it together and writes almost like a group commissioned fig, and she's just really good. And she's done some of it. I've seen she has some uh, published work that I think you can get on her website. I don't know if it's self-published or there's an actual publisher, 
but she's so good. So I'm subscribed to her. I'll read anything that she writes. Let's see. There's another author called Candle Beck. It's Candle underscore Beck, I think. And that's one of those weird situations where I think she she's either dead or she's writing professionally and totally dropped any and all fan interactions. But I remember I just, this will piss some people off, but somehow I stumbled, I was into Wincest for just a little bit from Supernatural. There's a lot of shame around that, but those characters were so compelling and there's some incredible stuff. But she wrote some stuff with the Sam and Dean pairing, but also she wrote these like professional baseball RPF. I don't know what to say other than that is one of the most talented writers I've ever read. And anything that she writes is like just, I don't know, it's like vivid and haunting and with an undercurrent of violence without actually being violent. It's just like really amazing writing. She seemed to upload everything she had in like 2011 and then just disappeared. So I have hope maybe she just ported everything over from her live journal to AO3. I would just pick anything on her list and just check it out. Candlebeck. Yeah, and then I'll just real quick mention in the Smallville fandom, which is the one I'm kind of getting into, again, it's 20 years old, and that means that it's had time to mature, so you've got this, like, stable of unbelievable writers. They're real veterans, like, and it sucks because I'm sure there's really good writers that are like me that are writing now inspired by these veteran writers, and because the fandom's not so active, the new stuff's not going to get the kudos that the old stuff has had time to accumulate. So if you filter by kudos, you're getting all these old, mature works. But anyway, but they're all good. But there's a, an author called Rivka T that I love, Separus, Rage Proofric. They're just so, so good. And I'm almost, not that we don't have great writers in the Cobra Kai fandom, but again, we just haven't had time for, in my opinion, that level of writing in some of the Smallville flicks is so good. So, and that's just my opinion. I think after 20 years, you definitely have more time to see those works reach that level, I guess. I would agree with that. I find the same thing. In the older fan fictions, you get those veterans that just are producing stuff that is just unbelievable. And then you get the younger fandoms that are just starting out. And it is so much fun to see what people come up with, but it's also fun to see that progression of the level of writing and what people are able to produce five years down the line. I think that concludes all of my main questions for today, but I was hoping that you could talk about your podcast really quick and then tell our listeners where to find your show. Yes, the the podcast that I started just a few months ago is called Talk and Fanfic, T-A-L-K-I-N apostrophe F-A-N-F-I-C. I started the same reason that Chaos Blue started hers. It's just, we want to talk about fanfic and there's no other shows doing it that are taking it seriously and talking to authors and treating fan fiction like real writing. So you can find it on Apple Podcasts, the same place you find this one. So just search Apple Podcast or Google, I guess Google Podcast. Oh, I just got it on Spotify. I also have an Instagram. It's just at Talkin' Fanfic where I just, I'll just give people a heads up that I'm working on an episode or this author's coming up. I haven't been putting out episodes as frequently the past couple months, but I've, I just did my 10th episode. So yeah, and yeah, I'm on Tumblr as well, at StoryShark2005 or at Talkin' Fanfic. Yeah, it's good. I Yeah, I just love talking to people just like you, and I feel like you are organizing your interviews uh, much better than, than I am. I kind of just wild, wild west it and just, there's a lot of just uh, conversation, and it, and it's but it's good fun. It's good fun, and I like featuring works that I like. It is good fun. 
I remember when I first found your podcast, I exercise in the morning before I work, so I take my dog before all the people come out in the neighborhood. So I was really looking for something to listen to, and that's around the time that I found your podcast. And I remember I binged it. Oh, that makes like you so week. happy. And I was like, oh, this is so great. So I was really pleased and happy to see that new episode come out just the other day. So folks, I highly recommend that you go check out Story Sharks podcast because it is well worth it, especially if you are a Cobra Kai fan or thinking about jumping into the Cobra Kai fandom. I highly, highly recommend it. Story Shark, do you have any last words for us today? Not really. Thank you for having me on. And yeah, Cobra Kai Season 3 is coming out uh, in January. I think January 8th still. It's on Netflix. So come join the fun. The karate is having a a uh, soul-searching, I don't know what you call it. Oh, there's a battle for the soul of karate in the valley or something like that. There's a popular tagline that's really fun. I would also say there's a, there's a if you like Cobra Kai, there's a podcast called Cobra Kai Companion and Companion of the K run by Peter and Bree are the host names and they interview cast members and they've just started a really great community over the past couple of years of fans and they've got a Facebook group that's really interactive. So if you want to get into fandom, Cobra Kai Companion. And there's a couple other podcasts like The Cobra Guys. Are you karate kidding me? Those are two of my other favorite Cobra Kai podcasts. So yeah, there's lots of great fan content to be found. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the Cobra Kai Companion podcast, because I did give that a listen at your recommendation. I especially appreciated the episode where we got Ralph and William to pop in to one of the episodes and we got to hear them for a little while and it was just fantastic i I would just say real quick that that was an accumulation of peter working his ass off for like two years and gaining the trust so he started out just trying to contact the kind of secondary or minor actors on the show so he interviewed actress that plays aisha and the actress that plays moon and the actress actor that plays kyler and he had this kind of whole stable of those interviews and then the, the interview started to get bigger and he interviewed martin cove but he hadn't gotten on you know the stars yet and the creators somehow he got the creator's attention the we call them the big three john josh and hayden and they came on which was a huge deal like all of us that listened to cobra kai companion were so happy for peter and so they formed a great relationship of trust with the creators of the show and that live stream that they did with the big three there were some kind of hints that that might happen that ralph and billy might come on that the big three had kind of dropped some hints but we didn't actually know that for sure and so we were the fans of uh, peter's were all watching along thinking maybe maybe and they popped on and it was just like i've never been so happy for somebody like i was happy for peter and brianna because they worked their butts off and brie was brought on as the co-host uh, i think about a year ago and, but this has been a labor of love for peter he does all the editing brianna is a she produces a ton of fan content, including fan fiction. That's great. But this has been Peter's labor of love for two years. So it's all hard work on his part. So uh, I'm so proud of him. And he actually was the one who, uh, when I told Bree that I wanted to do a podcast, I said, do you think I should tell Peter and just ask for advice? And she's like, oh my gosh, yes. So I messaged Peter and he gave me like a tutorial on how to use Audacity, which is a software I use, and just was nothing but supportive. So Peter from Cobra Kai Companion, I love you, buddy. So proud of him and Bree. So they're awesome. So just a quick plug for those guys. Yes, absolutely. You can tell by the quality of the show 
and the information that they present and just how fun it is that they put so much work and so much preparation into those shows. So kudos to those guys. Kudos to you. Folks, make sure that you go out and check out Story Shark 2005 Stories on AO3. Check out that podcast of hers. Give her some love. If you would like to reach out to me directly, I can be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.